Hello, everybody, and welcome to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. John and I met in a religion class in Oxford, England. Actually, we were in a pub. Well, yeah, but my point is you like to think deeply. And you love sports. I do. Marsha doesn't just love sports. She's a cross-country coach and in her alma mater's Hall of Fame. We're Team Shoot, and we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On this show, we go beyond sound bites and highlight reels. We're going deep. Let's do this. Today on Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century, we're continuing our visit with an economist. Yes, our guest is Andy Schwartz. He's a litigation economist with particular emphasis on antitrust, intellectual property, and securities. And um, if you're wondering why we want to have an economist on a sports show, um, that's a good question. Andy's also served as a consultant on legal cases such as White versus the NCAA, the O'Bannon case versus the NCAA, and has even argued in the NFL for the L.A. Raiders against the NFL. So Andy's written extensively, eloquently, and he would say snarkily, we can say humorously, about the economic relationship of big-time sports and higher education. Andy has an MBA from the Anderson School of Management at UCLA, an A.B. in History from Stanford, and a Master's of Arts in History from Johns Hopkins. Andy, um, we're so glad you're here, and I wonder if we could get into a little bit of, of some of the mythology that you debunk, especially in the appendices that you have in Jonah Sarah's new book, Indentured. You talk about racism, how some of the kind of practices of the way revenue-producing athletes who are often from economically challenged backgrounds fund activities for sports that are generally played by middle and upper class students, that that surfaces some racism there. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how, um, as an economist, you can kind of name or point towards some of the ways systemic racism manifests itself in collegiate sports. Yes, I'd, I'd like to talk about that. I, You know, I grew up in relatively snooty Boston suburb. My parents both went to college. Their parents all went to college. My dad has an MBA from Harvard back in the days when that was sort of like a, a such a mark of honor that you, you, you know, if you look at everybody in, who was anybody in the 70s or 80s, they all went to Harvard and got MBAs. So I grew up, if not wealthy, certainly very well off and thought when I left my Tony, mostly white or maybe 99% white, town that I didn't have a racist bone in my body, and mm-hmm. what I didn't know was that all the ligaments and mm-hmm. uh, the skin and everything, the, everything that I thought was common sense was baked into upper-middle-class white culture, mm. and that's fine. That's a culture I come from, but one of the things that college taught me, and then that, since, since then I've lived in a lot of you know, major American cities, and 
living in more diverse communities taught me is that just because that's what's common sense to me based on the culture that I grew up in doesn't mean it's true for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and you start to see things, I think, with, with better eyes. And, and here's an example I'll give from, like, I think if you were to say to my parents, this kid is finishing high school and he's going to take a gap year and he's going to go and study art in Europe. He's going to go to all, he's going to go to the Prado in Madrid, he's going to go to the Louvre in Paris, he's going to go to the Uffizi in, in Florence, and then after that year, uh, go to college. And, and not necessarily be a, an artist, but, but it's just going to be a broadening year. My parents would be like, okay, you know, that may not be the most practical way to spend the money, but that's a, that's a, a valid way to blow a year and blow money. And if I said instead, well, he's going to try to be a rapper and mm-hmm. go on the concert tour and, you know, get some tattoos and, and buy some, some fancy jewelry. And if it doesn't work out, then he'll go to college, but, but that's what he wants to do. They would be like, why would you do that? That mm-hmm. just seems so, so frivolous, and that's like wasting your time and money. And, and yet you could say that same sentence to somebody from, from another background, and they might be like, you're going to just go to art museums? And what? I don't get it. And so that, that, like, that, that's not just race, because that's that's, what I said there is really a class statement. But we have this correlation in America where there really aren't upper-middle-class non-white mores. There's only really upper-middle-class white mores. There are all sorts of cultures in, in, in working class, uh, but, but we have this sort of standard of what the sort of – I'm from Boston. We call them the Brahmins, what the Brahmin thing to do is. And – that percolates through everything. So I was at a conference in New York City, and Bill Battle, who's the athletic director at um, Alabama, and mm-hmm. um, Debbie Yao, who is at, from North Carolina State, were on a stage, and so was Dan Guerrero. And they were talking about this brand-new thing that happened, in part because of litigation that I've worked on, that said that now the, the definition of what a scholarship was would include a check, for, to cover the incidentals of going to college above and beyond the basics. So your, your cell phone, your, your, your food when the food plan isn't, isn't on, because not all schools have 21-meal food plans, your, your travel to and from campus at, uh, in the summer, things like that. And so athletes are getting a check, maybe $5,000 a year, maybe $2,000 a year, depending on the school. And these people up on the stage were perfectly content to say, now, it's their money, but we, tr- we really hope they don't blow it on hoverboards or, uh, one, Bill Battle said, I think, tattoos and rims. And mm. speaking about things that are sort of youth culture and maybe, you know, sort of like, like not white youth culture necessarily, mm-hmm. and it's coded. It's, it's a coded language, and when people hear that, I think lots of people go, yeah, that's right. And it's sometimes hard to separate out the class, the paternalism, and the racism, but it's definitely, there's definitely an element of racism. And one of the terms that I, 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 I'm proud of that I coined in, in a, an article, it's fear of a black wallet, and you know, it's playing mm. off of fear of a black planet. But the sort of things that a, an African-American young man with money does is, threatening is maybe the wrong word, but is, I'm going to say the word disgusting almost, it, it generates discussed among people in a way that I think that they feel it's justified to not let 
that African-American have that money because they're just going to blow it on those things that I find distasteful. I see it show up, too, in the unwillingness to be creative around how sports at the collegiate level can be a more honorable part of the academic enterprise. And by that, I mean, why can't we think about things like, um, you know, conservatory models or, you know, co-op models or whatever for education that actually honor athletics as a profession? And it seems to me that's sort of related to this and I, often, I do believe it's often subconscious, uh, unwillingness to see especially young black men as professionals or as people who are making sound economic decisions, um, who are investing in their future because they are playing a sport or whatever. It seems like there's some of the same stuff going on there in, in a systemic way, an unwillingness to think creatively um, about the way colleges can better accommodate these sports programs. I, I think that's right. It's, if, if you think about it, we use this verb for when people engage in sport, and I'm saying it in the singular there, but mm-hmm. um, uh, we say that they play. Mm-hmm. For sure, if you ask somebody in the NFL what they do for a living, what they do for work, they'll say, I'm a football player. Now, they might even say, I play football. But it's not play. We're using that verb differently than when we say, I play Monopoly. Mm-hmm. Or, I wouldn't play Monopoly, but um, I'm an antitrust economist. But, um, so, <laughs> or even play the high school at, at a low level or flag football or intramural. Right. It's a different. Right. Like when I played football, it was for fun. Mm-hmm. And when my coach said, you have to do all this extra stuff, I said, I have homework. And. Eventually, that's why I stopped playing that and, and, the, and the concussions but, um, uh, and the leg breaks. But um, when, when people think about sports, and this, I think, transcends race, it's like, I would love to do that. I would love to be paid to play a game. And the truth of the matter is that they would not love it. One hit from one linebacker, and almost everybody would say, I'll go back to my old job, please. That's right. And so... There's this disconnect that basically lets people say, that's easy. Everybody says this. When, when we describe something that's really easy, what do we call it? We call it a slam dunk. I don't know about you guys. I cannot come close to that. <laughs> that's right. I, well, and and a, a slam dunk would probably be basically, for me, if I use that phrase correctly, would mean that's impossible for me to do under any circumstances short of getting a ladder. But in our vocabulary, that means the easiest thing in the world. And, hmm. and before that, even a layup, right? People use the, the, the expression too. And so, so I don't think that that is necessarily race-based, but I don't think it hurts that the industries where people make a lot of money and it's predominantly white, we think of that as work, and the industries that have evolved over time, and it's important to recognize, right, most of the sports in America were segregated at one point or another. That's right. And much of our attitude towards sports developed then. So I don't think we can blame racism for, like, amateurism, because Texas didn't have black people on the football team until 1970, and amateurism was developed way before that. Mm-hmm. Um, Segregation was doing the racist work, and, and amateurism was doing the class work among, among whites. But when the, the segregation walls fell down, and when we as a society, on a legal way, accepted that that sort of thing was, was inappropriate, and we're, I would say, 
in a process of evolution towards, you know, the arc of justice is bending slowly, but it's, it's, it's bending towards justice. Um, working our way there, I feel like the, this interplay between the, the, the blackness of certain sports and the word play and amateurism all go together to make it easier. I feel like if, if amateurism was affecting only people who went into a, a profession that was predominantly white, let's just say the law, if we had amateurism for the law, it would have fallen by now. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's one of the reasons why worldwide the Olympic movement couldn't sustain things, why tennis couldn't mm-hmm. sustain amateurism over time, was because it was a spot where the world or the, or, uh, was willing to say, why, why are we isolating this subgroup of people and saying the, the normal rights that apply to everyone else don't apply to them? But we have this blind spot, or maybe not even a blind spot, we have a spot in our brain where we say, well, of course, for people like that, it is right. okay. It is okay to give them a different status because we have this 300-year history of giving them a different status. Well, mm-hmm. the, the, I guess, irony in this, from where I sit, on, or from where we all sit, on a college campus, football and basketball, predominantly played by people of color, are the ones that are, in essence, paying for all the... Olympic slash country club sports on campus. You know, Mark Emmert said this is a, a, a terrible argument. <laughs> you mean <laughs> that that's an argument about systemic racism? Right. Right. He, he, he would agree with your statement about the flow of money, and he said in response to something that I said actually back in 2011 that— um, Here, I'll read what you wrote. You wrote, <laughs> the current system imposes— an involuntary subsidy on students coming from the poorest elements of our society to pay for the activities for the broad middle and upper classes, to which Emmert said, this is a terrible argument. Yes, and the thing is is that he would acknowledge, and the NCAA relies heavily on the idea, if we started paying football players and basketball players, we would not have any money left to pay for the other sports, which is saying what, what I just said, and I don't think they would deny the NCAA's own data show that the sports that are generating the money have a much higher percentage in, in, in those two cases. Are, uh, in basketball, as a majority. In football, it's basically 50-50 um, African-American. So the facts are all true. What I think he's saying is terrible. the terrible argument is that that makes it racist. And I'm certainly not saying that it is racist in the way that you pass a law that says you have to use a different water fountain is racist. Mm-hmm. That's... That's overt, intentional. That's, that's like buying into racism and then passing laws to achieve it. This is different. This is a system that has the effect of, of transferring money from one racial community to another. And worse than that, it's from, generally speaking, people coming from low socioeconomic backgrounds mm-hmm. um, to high or middle socioeconomic backgrounds. So it's a weird, regressive tax. Let me just say one more thing, though, which is that I would cert- I could make the argument, and I think, I think that for some schools this is true, that in a lot of ways that subsidy isn't actually happening. The money is being taken away from the predominantly African-American, low socioeconomic status athletes, but it's not going to the middle-class athletes. It's just going to the university. It, and the university as a whole is, of course, servicing communities that are whiter and sure. wealthier than the average American. Only one-third of Americans go to college. So it's still that wealth transfer, but I'm not so sure it's going to the golf sure. player as much as it's going to the, you know, the provost's salary. Mm-hmm. And I, right. say this because, I say this because 
there are plenty of schools with no football money, and Division Two would be an example, that have non-revenue sports. And it's a little bit like my yacht example. Like, the decision to have non-revenue sports is a decision, generally speaking, do we want to have non-revenue sports on campus or not? How much do we want to pay for it? The fact that they can say, well, we're paying for it with the football profits, that's an accounting conference uh, convention. They're making money. The money, yeah. it, the, the money all goes into your pants, and which pocket you pull it out of doesn't matter. The one thing I'd like to say just before we move on to the next as well, and, and it's in regards to, you know, Guerrero and Yao and, and Battle. The young men that I've worked with, when they get so many of them, Whenever they get some money in their pocket, whether it's from a Pell Grant, anything like these guys are sending money home. Many sending the money home, yeah. And so we th- just th- assumed that, well, they're just going to spend it. Really, some of the guys you wouldn't think or would be smart with it are spending it on spring break and buying beer and stuff like that. So many of the young men from underprivileged backgrounds, they're not allowed to work. So that's the money that they're sending home to help with mom, with, with siblings and things mm-hmm. like that. Right. I've, I've never, I've literally never had a hungry day in my life except for on diets, like when I'm forcing myself mm-hmm. to lose weight. And that's not true about everybody, but there are a lot of people who are that way. And I think that they think of college, they think of things like spring break and going and being zany as like, that's what you're supposed to do. And that in some ways with the, 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 the recent uproar over Jim Harbaugh's taking his team down to Florida on spring break to, to have some of their spring practices, I kept saying, like, why, why are we angry about this? Mm-hmm. If, if you think that spring practice is okay, wouldn't you rather have them do their spring practice during vacation time than during school time? Yeah. And they're like, boy, but you're taking away, like, what, taking away, like, doing shots, jello shots on the beach or whatever <laughs> it is. And um, whereas people who I think grow up in a situation where there's at least food uncertainty, I mean, some forms of poverty where the folks back home who, who aren't good enough to get an athletic scholarship may be on, let's just say food stamps, sending that money home is it's a godsend to the family. Yes. And if you think about it, every dollar more that that athlete gets is one dollar less that we as taxpayers have to provide that family because they're living in poverty. So it's this really funny subsidy, which is that we as taxpayers in America in some sense by allowing amateurism to exist, are paying, paying for people's welfare, paying for people's food stamps, when instead there could be a young man earning that money, right. um, being taxed and sending the money home. Like, if you think about the political rhetoric of the, the era, that's supposed to be what we, we love, right? We want people to stand on their own two feet. And then we have this funny system that, that sort of it infant, infantilizes these young men by saying, well, we're going to treat you like children, and it impoverishes them. And you're like, well, I would love to live in poverty like that. I'd love to have three square meals a day and a room and board. It's like, well, right. Yeah. But when their actual earning potential is so much higher, taking away three-quarters of someone's income, the fact that the 25% that's left is valuable doesn't mean that they didn't lose 75%. I'd like to read another statement that you wrote. I see no evidence that the pay level of the athletes affects the popularity of the product. I see a lot of evidence that the connection between the team and the university in a holistic way matters a lot. So my question is this, if if players were to get wages 
if wages weren't fixed at such a low level, and say Clemson didn't build a putt-putt golf course for the players, but instead paid their players a better wage, would people still come to the games on Saturday afternoons? Well, if you were to go out and do a survey, you would get a lot of people who would say no. Hmm. They would say, no, I only like college sports because they, they play for the love of the game, and the moment you pay them, I'd stop going. But People are really bad at predicting their future level of outrage over things. So, as an example, when free agency started in baseball in the 1970s, there started being polls about what do you think about the, the growing levels of pay in baseball. And I can show you a chart. Every five years, a majority of people say baseball players are made too much, get paid too much. And if the survey goes and asks, are you going to watch less baseball because of it, they say yes. And every year, baseball revenues go up. The only time that baseball revenues have ever gone down was when they canceled the World Series that season. The only time that baseball revenues went down was when they stopped selling baseball. And the level of pay has had no impact on it. People get very confused about this. One of the things that they think is that baseball ticket prices are high or football ticket prices are high because the athletes make so much, and that's backwards. The athletes make a lot because the product is valuable, so the tickets prices are sold high, and then they now have effective unions that help them bargain to get half of it. In terms of, of college sports, here's a thought experiment you could do. Let's take the D-League in basketball. People say, look, college sports is much more popular than the D-League in basketball. That's amateurism. Okay, what if we stopped paying the players on the D-League teams and only gave them room and board to, and like a, a voucher to go to a community college? Would that make the D-League more popular? Like, would suddenly people go, oh, yeah, the Santa Clara Warriors, i got to go watch them? Hmm. Probably not. I, I really think not. And so if, the, if, you can, if you can add amateurism to an existing product and not improve demand, then I don't see why you would think that by taking it away you would harm it. What the difference is between the D-League the, and, and college sports is the college part of it and the built-in fan base that an alumni or at least the community brings, like people – when I was in Alabama, I learned about the concept of Bammers, who are people who didn't go to to the university in Tuscaloosa, but who are fans of the team. For sure, some of the value is coming from the Crimson Tide. But what would happen if the Crimson Tide stopped recruiting and just started having tryouts on the first day of school and letting people go out, and all those five stars started going to Auburn and, and, and Ole Miss and every place else, and Alabama started losing I think that eventually the fans would stop coming. Maybe not the first year. They've got season tickets. There's a waiting list. People will be excited. But you give them five years of being 2 and 10, uh, and I know that TV attendance would go down. I think that in-person attendance, I mean, TV viewership would go down. And so while that Crimson Tide brand is a huge part of it, the brand is built on the historical performance of the players. And if that historical performance slacks off, so too – the value of the brand will decline. So the players are integral in that, and people will say things. People will say, look, if you took the five players who are starting for Kentucky and you took them out of the Kentucky uniform and you had them play at a park in Lexington, Kentucky, nobody would come. And I don't know if that's true, but even if it is true, yes, but if you took those uniforms and you put five guys like me in them, yeah. <laughs> right. they would stop coming too. It's a joint product. It's It's... It's like saying whether the car is the engine or the exterior. It's both. If these players were to get a wage, that wouldn't affect the level of play. As long as the level of play is quality 
And I think you argue, too, that they are students. As long as the level of play is, is high quality and these players are students in the university, pay them what their market value is and the crowds won't shrink. That's not necessarily part of the equation. Yeah, I, I, I since I wrote that, I, I mean, I completely agree with you. Um, here, here, let me give you the arguments that people would make against that statement and then tell you why I think that they're wrong. So think about the old, old days, you know, the Amos Alonzo stag days of, of football and things like that. There were guys who didn't go to college who were ringers. Right. And what a ringer was, if you've seen, never seen the movie Horse Feathers, it's a Marx Brothers movie, they basically, the, the college doesn't have good enough football players, so they go out and they pay some big bruisers to come, and they're, they're not college students. <laughs> and in those days when the revenue from the team was sort of de minimis, why would you pay your own students, right? They weren't recruiting good students or students at all to play football. It was either they're already on campus and they're students or paying these non-students. And so paying players and bringing in ringers, ringers were perfectly correlated. Mm-hmm. It, would have, it was basically these will be different people. These will be non-students. That's not true anymore. Mm-hmm. Or to the extent to which it, it, it is true, it's only true if you believe that the current people being recruited with scholarships aren't real students. And, and maybe for some ones and dones that's a little bit true. But certainly for the majority of players in FBS football and D1 basketball, they are real students. And if you give them money, that doesn't change that one iota. The people who write for the Stanford Daily and many other school, uh, school newspapers get paid to do that. They're full students, and they get paid by the column. Or they get paid if they sell advertising for the, for the school yearbook. They get paid a commission. Something like half of all students at colleges have jobs at the same time, and many of those jobs are being employed by their university. So this idea right. that, that earning money from the university makes you less of a student, what makes you a student is, do you go to class? Do you maintain a good GPA? Do you study? Do you, and then all the other things, too. Do you hang out with your peers? Do you get to go to a concert? And, and if anything, those things are in some ways denied to right. the, the, the most elite athletes, right. the, the full experience. Hardly any of them go to a study abroad. They um, can't, Yeah. Right. I mean, unless the coach says, yeah, use your redshirt year and go and study abroad, but that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. That's right. right. And so the money piece, it's, it, in, in economics and in math in general, we have this idea, this, this concept called orthogonal, and it basically means irrelevant, but it's like so much of a different question that it doesn't even factor in to the argument. There's like literally, if you were to go and speak to the bursar on campus or the provost and say, would you kick out a student because they had a job? They would say, what? Why, why, why would we do that? Are they, are they maintaining yeah. you know, right. their GPA? But, and then you say, oh, well, what if he's an athlete? Oh, well, NCAA rules. And, you know, and so it's this, this, different, this different way of thinking, but it has no impact. And like, so we can go through, people don't maybe know this, but in the 19th century, baseball started out as an amateur sport. It wasn't until the Cincinnati... Red stockings, I think they called themselves, became a pro team, and that's in like the 1860s, 1870s, that the idea of a paid baseball team made sense to people, and the Albany Knickerbockers, who were the star team of the time, said, oh, well, we start paying players, it will ruin the gentlemanly character of the sport. 
you know, and that's almost a joke in itself if you think about the kind of rogues who are playing baseball. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> it will ruin the gentlemanly character of the sport, and it will kill attendance. And, of course, the Reds went, like, they did a barnstorming tour, and they won every single game, and it was packed. Everyone wanted to see this great team, almost sort of like the dream team. And that's the same thing with the dream team. When, when basketball and the Olympics sure. went, the Olympic. yeah. went to letting paid players be in the, in the Olympics, People love the Dream Team. And so that's one element, which is that we have a long history of other sports. And I mentioned tennis before. 1968 was the first time that you could be, be paid to play tennis and also be in Wimbledon. Right. And before that, Wimbledon was popular. And after that, Wimbledon became really popular. There was a big boom of tennis in the 1970s. Well, and uh, in our experience, I would say it's pretty obvious to us as people who've had proximity to collegiate football players at the highest level that it would make them better students and more likely to finish their degrees and things like that if they were paid for their craft, for, for their sure. labor. For, and for sure. it, it creates incentive to stay in school, and it also takes away a lot of stress. These guys and, and also women athletes at this level are under a lot of stress. They're working their tails off. And to not know if you're going to have anything to eat over spring break or to feel just kind of marginalized in the community because you're not able to participate in the life on campus as most other students are creates a lot of stress. And I think having enough money to do what you need to do to be healthy and to be comfortable is one way to decrease stress. And so I I see a direct correlation between paying players and actually making them better students. Of um, course. Of course. I mean, I think I, I say of course because there is actually there are people in academia who study educational outcomes. Mm-hmm. And about the best predictor of educational outcome is socioeconomic status meaning the more money you have, the more likely you are to graduate. Hmm. And that's not even disputed. In, in, no one is saying, oh, you know, it's better to be poor. You'll, you'll study harder. Right. Um, no, because of all the things you say. If people back home are having, say, food insecurity, and, and they're saying to you, you need to go get a job, because, like, let's, let's not focus on the one a, a person who is a sure draft choice, but somebody right. who is good enough to play college ball, and is going to get an education out of it, but the, but isn't going to earn any money in sport when they're done. The the classic going pro in something else. That's um, those are the people that we. But if that person is from a poor family, yeah. maybe the family can't this. wait four years for them to get there, and they drop out, or or they finish their eligibility, they haven't finished their degree. That extra year to get there is going to be almost impossible. Even if they had a fifth year scholarship, they might just be like, you know, we need you to get a job now, and so yeah. Um, and that happens all the time all to people. The all the time to people who aren't football athletes, and everyone knows it. But when they when they turn their mind over to the sport, they're like, "Well, we gave them a free a free degree." Well, no, you gave them you gave them compensation in the form of uh, you know tuition remission and a room and board to attend school, and then you said, "By the way, you have to have a full time job, and it's football, and we're not going to give you additional compensation." And, and we know that everybody with a full-time job on campus has a lower graduation rate than everybody who is sufficiently well-off not to have any job at all, and yet we're surprised that athletes don't do as well. Right, and the other, by the way, before we move on, is 
you, by the way, we're going to say that the education that we're giving you is the compensation, but by the way, you can't pick the classes you want and you can't pick a major you're interested in and blah, 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 blah. So, I mean, right. there, there's so many stress stressors that people don't understand um, who haven't been a part of it. And I mean, there's, there are lots of different things we could talk about. We could have a show with you every week and dig into some other aspect of this. And I wonder if you could say a little bit as we kind of close out our conversation about what, from your perspective, is the most effective route to change the legal system or players organizing or advocacy groups or change at the congressional level? What this is such an embedded, entangled mentality and system, but change is so needed and so necessary. What What's going to actually shake some things loose? Um, I, I can give you answers, but I don't know if any of them are the answer, so mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do my best. This is, this is a little bit of a depressing question, and uh, my, second, my second plug for the, the book indenture that uh, ben, ben Strauss and Jonah Sarah wrote, people are interested in the discussion we're having. Joe was on your show recently. They should get this book. At the end of that book, Joe gives a really, I don't want to spoil it, but it's sort of he has a, a downer tone that a lot of progress got made over the course of 2013, 2014, and then 2015 in a lot of ways represents a bit of a retrenchment. What happened was a court victory in O'Bannon and a labor victory at the regional part of the NLRB got either uh, neutered or completely uh, obliterated at the sort of appeals level right. of, the, of the legal system or the labor system. So in one of, my, one of my many excellent mentors is a man named Doug Zona. And Doug says that you can think about a market, basically price gets set by the interaction of three things. There's demand, there's the cost of supply, and there's strategic interaction among firms. There's plenty of demand out there for colleges to pay athletes because think about it why do we have a rule saying they can't do it it's because we're afraid that if they could they would mm. if if the rule went away today what would alabama do they'd pay they pay players right <laughs> and, and then if alabama did then auburn did and if alabama and auburn and the whole sec did then jim delaney notwithstanding the big 10 would do it and then the pac 10 12 would do it and and so the demand is there the cost of supply it doesn't cost anything more to produce an athlete who gets paid than to produce an athlete now and to, and to the, our educational system, our society. What's really, really stopping it is the strategic interaction among firms. It's the collusion among the 351 Division I schools and the 130 FBS football schools saying we won't pay. So, so how do you break that? Whenever there's collusion, well, one way you can get it is if members of the cartel themselves, when I say cartel, I mean a group that colludes, when the TV rules went away, it was because schools like Oklahoma and Georgia were tired of giving their TV money to sure. other schools. And so the cartel broke down because the, the way they were dividing up the monopoly profits wasn't suitable to everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, when you have a buyer's cartel that, that is, that's pushing down the price of an input like labor, generally speaking, it's hard to get the, the members of the cartel to break away because they're all getting cheaper labor. So you could see a world, like, like, again, if I became, if I got the job of running the American conference, I would break the cartel from within side. Another way it can happen is litigation. If, if the courts come in and say the interaction among the firms that you're engaged in is illegal, like they did in O'Bannon, 
and then they went one step further and say, so you have to stop doing it, which didn't happen in O'Bannon, that would break it. The third way would be a strike. And as it stands now, we haven't talked about it too much, but the NLRB has basically said, for the time being anyway, they don't think that national labor law is even relevant to the questions. Not that the athletes are or aren't employees, but that it's a question they won't address. Mm-hmm. They won't address it right now. They won't address yeah. it and use the word punt, and that's exactly right. I, I, it's really sad mm-hmm. that, showing maybe some of my colors, that even a democratically-led National Labor Relations Board was unwilling to recognize the labor rights of a group of predominantly mi- minority athletes. Um, so anyway, that has been shut off. But as the people at University of Missouri have taught us, that if you say that the athletes aren't employees and labor law doesn't apply at all even, then what's to stop them from saying, well, since this is not a job, I'm not going to come today. That's right. And so there certainly could be something that looks a lot like a strike. The problem is is that that's a hard thing for anyone to do. Add to it that, that, that you have a team which is a mix of a few people who are trying really hard to make a career out of this sport and want to go into a profession, either basketball or especially football, where speaking mm-hmm. a diverse opinion is often seen as a distraction. Um, or a liability. Right. And, and look, unless you are Cam Newton or Andrew Luck, there's a lot of quarterbacks who are sort of about the same. And we'll take the one who isn't, well, who isn't open-minded and isn't sure. speaking That's out right. on these issues yeah. um, over, over a guy who is. And so for what? them it's hard. For everybody else, the scholarship is their pay. And it's hard for, to get any worker to say, I'm going to give up my pay today to make more money tomorrow or worse, not worse, but more uh, theoretically make money for somebody in the future. So it's very hard, I think, to organize. I was so proud of the athletes at Missouri who did that. Yes. Um, and it's funny because people like tried to make a distinction. These guys weren't just fighting for their own good. They were fighting for the goods of everyone good on campus. But I don't think that it's less noble to fight for future football players than it is to fight for current non-football players. In both cases, you are trying to change an unjust system. Um, and then exactly. the final way, and people don't talk about this a lot, but it's hard, and it's hard in part because almost every eligible college is pretty much locked into the, to the NCAA system. But if you could get a bunch of colleges, maybe like if somebody somehow went to the NAIA and convinced them we're going to become a paid college league and we're going to grab every McDonald's All-American in basketball and we're going to grab every five-star athlete and we're going to pay them enough to come here and, after, and we're going to get a network because there are lots of networks looking for content. In the long run, if they kept doing it, either the NCAA schools would have to buckle under or accept lower talent. And then if my theory is right that what matters is talent in the long run, they would start to lose fans and this new league would start to gain less. So, but the thing sure. is, and this is important in antitrust laws, is that if there are barriers to entry like owning a college and then you gobble up all of – you create those barriers by – by cartelizing everybody who owns one of the assets, that is part and parcel of an antitrust conspiracy. Talk about going deep. You sure <laughs> went deep on a lot of issues today. I warned you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, I, I'd encourage all of our listeners to read as much as they can that you've written because I think it's really, really interesting stuff and, and powerful stuff. And I sure want to thank you for spending a couple hours with us this morning. Well, yeah. I... I I love talking, and I love talking to people who are 
who are interested. So it was really great fun and um, can't wait to see how, whether, what sort of reaction you get from your audience. Yeah, and I think we hope we can reserve the right to have you back because there's so many things we didn't get to talk about that I think are evolving today in this whole reform conversation. And one of, one of my takeaways from this conversation really is how important and powerful the economics of this conversation is. I mean, or I should say are, that money is what it's all about. Money is what is kind of providing the blockades for reform. But also money is where we could probably shake loose some of the mentalities because a lot of what you do is debunk the myths that say that this is all about a losing proposition if we create more equity or we create more fairness. You are saying, actually, no, there's some things that would that would still be very profitable um, and maybe even more profitable than maybe they are more. now if we really look at the economics of this. And so that that is my takeaway, and that's what I really appreciate about your work, Andy, is there's, um, there's a pragmatism about it and a truth-telling about it that's really concrete that I think has the potential to create some traction for change. That's my takeaway. What about you, John? Well, my takeaway was how profitable this could be for everybody. Mm -hmm. I was unsure whether players should be paid or not, but so much of what you have written has really convinced me that this is America and free markets are what America is about. Mm -hmm. And the market will kind of figure itself out. Sure, there'll be some teams that pay too much at one point and too little at another, but It'll start to figure it out. And, you know, Marsha, I thought of what you wrote, actually, one time in your book about the stealthiness of racism in all this. And you wrote, I wonder how tired white power brokers are of scrambling to maintain this house of cards. It's not that hard. And mm -hmm. what you have talked about today, Andy, is if we just let it happen the markets will kind of set themselves. Don't the conference commissioners and Mark Emmert, don't, don't they got to be tired of just fighting <laughs> this every single day? It's got to be hard, huh? Well, uh, Upton Sinclair said it's nearly impossible to convince a man of something if his salary depends on not understanding it. Mm. And I think that that is a, a strong motivator, that cognitive dissonance, you can maintain when people ask you why is the coach paid so much like well it's an open market and that's america why is the athletes price fixed well they're students or mm. well we couldn't for this reason or not it's a lot of can't don't thinking i call it instead of can do and if tomorrow the rule went away and they had to make it work of course they would make it work we didn't talk about it i uh, first of all i promise you that if i'm ever made commissioner of a, a league you'll be my first interview but um <laughs> You I know, want to work for you. Yeah. We, 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 could talk about, we could talk about how amateurism leads to, the, leads to the high coach pay. We could talk about all sorts of things that you're exactly right, that, that, that higher, pay, higher pay for athletes could be more profitable for schools in, in the long run. And that's a great irony. Um, and then I guess the last thing that I would just say to everyone is whenever somebody who has power, is in control of the flow of money, tells you that – for whatever good, reason, good, good intentions, the plan you have is unworkable. You should, you should recognize that is a biased opinion because they are the winners in the current system. And so whether or not it's true, they are coming to it knowing that change for them likely means they won't win as much. And, and the single biggest 
beneficiaries in terms of what they do versus what they get paid on the system, I think, are the athletic directors and the conference commissioners. And, of course, they hold all the power, but their pay would drop substantially in a world where athletes get paid. That's where a lot of the money would come from, and I don't have a problem with that shift, but I could easily see why if I were an athletic director or a conference commissioner, right. I would be reluctant to, to espouse change. Yes, that's very well said. And it I sure think, it's, again, comes down to the almighty dollar. It is a powerful motivator. And, uh, Andy, we thank you so much for being with us today, and we hope all of our listeners will continue to join us. We've got some interesting shows in the queue you won't want to miss. We're going to be talking about race and racism soon. We're also going to be here with uh, one of John's former players and a player who has been an advocate for change uh, in a unique way, and that's um, Devin Ramsey. Uh, We'll be talking about the genetics of competition. There's so many things coming up you won't want to miss on Going Deep. And thanks to WBAA, West Lafayette's public radio station. And a shout out and thanks, of course, to our very able and wonderful sound engineer, Erica Yan. Remember, you can follow us on iTunes and SoundCloud, and you can find us on Twitter at ShoopsGoingDeep and ShoopsGoingDeep.com. Many thanks also to all you listeners out there. We're so thankful for you and grateful that you continue to decide to go deep with us. We're Team Shoop, and we'll hope to see you next time on Going Deep. Going Deep.